Hey guys, this is Joy and Claire. Welcome to another episode of This is Joy and Claire. This week, Claire is out. Her kiddos are sick. Claire is sick. But we wanted to provide a very special guest for you this week, wrapping up Mental Health Month. You know, actually, this episode's gonna go out on June 2nd, but it's okay. It's like right on the tail end of Mental Health Month. Very excited to welcome Jessica Baum to the show. Hi, Jessica. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being here. I was very excited when you were pitched to us as a guest because my life is mental health has been for 20 years. And it's um, kind of rare for whatever reason. I think it's just kind of like a very isolated world as a therapist. You don't just kind of like go on podcasts all the time. And it's a, it's a tricky thing to do to talk about mental health without it kind of getting into like client privilege. So I'm so excited to talk to you. You have a book coming out. Um, you have a business. You have a coaching business. So give the listeners a quick rundown of who you are and what you do. Okay. So yes, I'm Jessica Baum. I'm a psychotherapist. And I do have a coaching business with a team of therapists, and we really specialize in trauma and relationships and helping people kind of work through either their interpersonal problems in their relationships or how their childhood trauma or how their core wounds are showing up repeatedly in their relationship and getting really conscious with their partner or single on on repairing that and healing that so they don't have to keep repeating the same patterns in their life. And so what kind of prompted you to do this work? I remember, I think I heard you on another episode of of a podcast talking about how you wrote the book that you kind of wish you had. What pulled me into psychotherapy was my own journey with depression and anxiety. But what prompted me to write the book, and I, I kind of felt like I was a codependent and I was reading every single book in my 20s on codependency, and nothing was really explaining what was happening in my body, like the the sensations in my body, the nervous system. It wasn't until I really understood attachment theory and the nervous system and how, you know, relationships activate everything for your core wounds to surface and made sense of my experiences and a lot of my behaviors that I knew. And I, and then I was seeing it in my practice in couples counseling, I was seeing a lot of these unconscious bonds being made and I was helping people unpack these. And I was just like, I got to get some of this out into the world. So, so people understand what's really going on inside of them and what's happening inside their relationships. You made me think about when I was in my twenties about how you're trying so hard to kind of quote unquote, figure out what's wrong with you when there's so much more to, to that than just like one thing that's wrong with you. Can you explain Uh, And I shouldn't say wrong, but you know, like the things that we're trying to work through. Can you explain a little bit to our listeners about attachment theory and what that means? Sure. So attachment theory is at the root of a lot of things, but when you're a baby and you are with your primary caregivers, the way in which your mother relates to you, but it's called co-regulation. So the energy, you're one energetic unit with your mother and you're kind of in a dance. And so she's attending to your needs and attuning to you. And so if you have a mom who's good enough and attunes to you and, and is there, you can develop a more secure base within. And that means when your mom isn't there one day, you feel secure. But if you have a mom who has a lot of stress in their life or didn't have, doesn't have the emotional IQ or is going through something, she's not as available to you and doesn't attune to you. Your nervous system is primed to think that maybe you won't get your needs met. So that's definitely where an anxious person goes, or they'll be inconsistent with you. So you might get your needs met and then you feel like the ball's going to drop inside your system all the time. Or an avoidant person is someone 
who didn't get their needs met at all and just kind of gives up on relationships and doesn't place a lot of value on them and has a hard time being vulnerable and co-regulating. So an anxious person can struggle with self-regulating because they didn't get a lot of co-regulation and an avoidant person learns only to self-regulate because they didn't get a lot of co-regulation. So the goal is to really kind of understand where you fall and work with your individual needs and work with that and understand that so that you can build some more security within. And that's a process. When people are kind of deciding or not deciding, but learning about themselves to say, gosh, I think this might be a fit for me. Is it always that they have to go to therapy to talk through this? Or what do you suggest people do to connect with what they're personally going through? Yeah. So I think that if you're having an idea that you have some codependency or you have abandonment wound, you don't have to go to therapy, but you need to build secure relationships so that when these things come up, you have safe people to go to that can help hold them. It's not always about fixing. Sometimes it's just knowing that people are there for you when you're in a more anxious state and having that that support system there. It doesn't necessarily have to be a therapist, although a therapist might help connect it to deeper things in your life and therefore integrate more of your experience and help you kind of build what we call neuroplasticity and expand your window of tolerance. So therapist, a coach, but someone who's non-judgmental, warm and consistent and reliable, you kind of want a few of those people in your life and your nervous system will start to recognize, okay, I have some safe people to depend on. So when I get anxious, the first thing I can do is start to depend on dependable people. Yeah. Like it's going to be okay. I always talk to clients about like soothing of how Mm. you just need to be soothed. I'm assuming that kind of ties into when you're a baby or the attachment of being soothed or not soothed. And how that shows up for you is people who will self-soothe or they'll turn to alcohol or drugs or whatever kind of addiction because they're trying to self-soothe. Talk a little bit about like how you see that tying into the work. Yeah, sure. So when you're born, you're not born with a parasympathetic nervous system. So you have a sympathetic nervous system intact, but your parasympathetic is not fully developed. And that's the part of your system that kind of calms you down. Your mother or primary caregiver is the stand-in for your self-soother. So she's not able to self-soothe you. You don't build the circuitry for self-soothing. You can't self-regulate. That's essentially one of the major hallmarks of someone who struggles with anxious attachment. Because the mom wasn't able to attune and soothe you, you didn't build that neuro wiring inside. So you can't just go out and self-soothe. You actually need healthy co-regulation to create self-regulation. That happens first. So if that's you and you struggle, it's actually but by being co-regulated, or being really held and attuned by a therapist or someone who really knows how to be with you, that when that happens enough, that's when you actually build the the neuroplasticity to start to self. So when you say co-regulating, you're meaning that there's a, another person with you to kind of help guide you through those emotions. When you're a baby, it's rocking, it's maybe patting on the back, it's mm-hmm. rubbing the arm, it's whatever it is that's kind of that very um, calming presence. Is that what that is? Yeah. I mean, I love those examples. Those are really great, but it also really comes down to the nervous system. So when you have someone whose nervous system, we call it an ventral state. So it's an open state and you can't fake this state, right? So our nervous system. So if someone's in a safe state and is present with you and they have a They'll have a calmer voice. They'll be more attentive. They will be more soothing because they're soothed. Your system recognizes that and their system can help your system downregulate or, you know, 
that their system is helping you kind of regulate your own yeah, system. Kind of a, a mirroring of sorts. Yeah. Kind of mirroring of sorts. Okay. Or joining. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so fascinating. I have a million questions, but I'm trying to like stay on track with my questions. So first question I would, I'm guessing, I kind of guess what the audience is going to ask is like, is this the only way to get that soothing, that regulating, that co-regulating? Is it from a mother? Can it be from a care, any caregiver? Uh, anybody. Yeah. Okay. Anybody who's genuinely authentically there for you and ha- okay. can provide that safety in their system. That stability, that safety. Okay. And then what would you say some examples of like how it starts to show up as people get older? Is it show up as a child? Does it show up as a teenager? Does it show up as an adult? When would people start to recognize like this might be lacking in their life? When they can't regulate, maybe they're reaching out for substance when they're over-dependent on their romantic partner to self-regulate or people when they have a hard time calming themselves down, if they feel perpetually anxious or like the shoe is going to drop, low self-esteem is a common indicator that the sense of self isn't really um, very secure. So it could show up at any point in your life. I mean, a lot of children, I mean, you can notice it earlier on, but it definitely shows up in your romantic relationships because the way in which you adapted or that these things, strategies happen when you were little, get replayed in your adult life. Um, unconsciously because it's their nervous system responses. So when you're in a romantic relationship, um, you tend to attract the other person. You tend to sometimes be a pleaser. You have, you can abandon yourself. Um, there's a lot of um, what I call selfless behaviors in order to stay in connection because we're all wired to be in connection. It's our biological imperative to stay in connection. So however you adapted when you were small are going to be the same strategies that you use an adult. I mean, the behaviors might look different, but the strategies get laid down really early. It's so interesting. And so you hear about people who are like, I'm never going to be like my parents, or I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. But you kind of, and I'm not saying this is like all across the board, it's bad, but sometimes we do look at our caregivers and we're like, well, I'm not going to repeat this behavior. I'm not going to repeat this angry behavior. I'm not going to repeat whatever. And you kind of end up doing it. Is it a similar thing where you're just you have that template or that inner workings, that inner connection that you just can't automatically think your way out of it. You have to kind of work through it a little more intensely, maybe through therapy. Mm-hmm. I like so, that question a lot. Yeah. So, you know, and I talk about this in the book, but so we internalize our parents, whether we like it or not, we take them in their essence becomes part of us. If it's a secure parent, it's a safe voice. It's a safe feeling. If it's an anxious parent or an absent parent, we bring that in. And that's why when you're co-regulating or you're picking people to heal with now, you start internalizing them. So you start to replace, I call it your inner community, but you start to internalize healthier people. So you can think, okay, maybe I don't have the words for myself right now, but what would so-and-so say to me right now? How would it feel to be next to them? And you kind of rebuild what you didn't get. You kind of just build that inner security again with the right people now. Kind of have to think of it if you have to go back and you kind of just have to re-experience things early on a healthier way now so you can kind of reshape your brain, essentially. That makes a lot of sense. I think a lot about, this is going to sound so silly, but it's the only example that kind of comes to mind. Like when you kind of watch it in real time, 
I love reality shows. I love reality shows. And so I'll watch some of these, like, I don't know, either Love is Blind or like Married at First Sight, where if you haven't watched it, listeners, basically, they're like paired up and you can see, it's almost like you can see as a therapist, I'm like watching this from a behavioral lens. I'm like, oh my gosh, you can kind of see the attachment stuff just come out right on screen. Where at first, it's just like that honeymoon phase, everything's blissful and happy. And everyone's just like, oh my gosh, it's the best person in the world. And the second they start connecting at a more intimate level and like, you know, the emotions go deeper, all of this stuff comes out and they start mm-hmm. arguing and like, quote unquote, real life sets in. Would you say that like, that's kind of an example, a silly one, uh, of course, but like an example of like how attachment styles will happen. Like once you start mixing it up with a partner, it's not always going to be hearts and flowers. And Claire and I talk about this a lot on, we try to be very real about our own partnerships because we never want people to kind of fall into the, like the fairy tale Instagram land, which everything's like, oh my gosh, look at my perfect best friend that I live with. And it's like, we have the most blissful relationship. And it's like, that's not how it is. We all, one of my previous therapists said to me, which I love is like, no one shows up naked to the party. We've all got something. We all carry something to the party. We all got our crap that we have to like show up to. So would you say that like that is kind of an example of how people would see it maybe start to show up more intensely? I think romantic partnerships tend to present it a little more uh, like strongly, like in your face. Mm, yeah, no, I think you're dead on. I think when you really study the neuroscience and the evolution of relationships, what our culture, like the, what we're presented to you know, the, what it should look like is a setup. People don't understand that when you start in a relationship, you you start as your best self. I always say like your best self shows up. Yeah. And then as you get closer to intimacy, either the fear of intimacy or the fear of abandonment can show up. And then the strategies around that show up. So that's common with the anxious avoidant dance that I'm sure a lot of people are maybe, maybe, or maybe not familiar with, but one person's scared of being intimate and the other person's scared of being abandoned. So one will run closer while the other one, like, you know, distances themselves and there'll be all these strategies. And I think when intimacy, you don't really know what the dance is until the fears and the core wounds start getting touched. And then you can start to see, okay, here's where the work is. And if you can do the work, I mean, you can, you get vulnerable and conscious about what's really going on. There's a beautiful path to healing your own stuff and evolving as a couple, but it's hard. I mean, it's not easy and you need help. Sometimes you need help around that. Yeah. It's so hard. I mean, I've talked about this the past forever years that we've been doing this, how it took me like a good five years to settle into being married. Meaning like I was all over the place. I was like, I was probably anxious, anxiously attached, but talk about your book because I'm, I'm noticing the title, like anxiously attached. What is that? What does that look like a little bit more? What is the book about? Can you walk us through a little bit of that piece? Yeah. I mean, so the book is about healing anxious attachment. So I go through what that really is, how you've adapted. I also go, I talk a lot about avoidant attachment because it's the other side of the same coin. And I find that anxious people always want to understand that. And I think if you're anxious, you're going to, you're going to pick up on any avoidant protector. So I kind of walk the reader through really understanding how they adapted, locating their core wounds. And then I have some somatic pra- uh, practices. So for those that are listening, it's kind of going into your body, starting to release some of those sensations, starting to be more embodied. And then the last part of the book or the third part of the book is about how to apply that to your recurrent or future relationships. So it's a three-part 
book and first you're kind of identifying and learning about yourself, then you're doing the inner work and then you're taking some of that and you're kind of learning how do I love differently from this new perspective in the third part of the book. So I'm really excited because I'm an Imago therapist. I don't know if you're familiar with that. But I am. So has, talk, yeah, talk a little bit about that. And so for people yeah. who aren't familiar, Imago. So Imago means image. And I kind of talk about this in chapter two, but we are, can be attracted to um, partners who have positive and negative qualities of our primary caregivers. And this happens on an unconscious level. And sometimes the people we are attracted to have the same level of wounding as us. And so we don't even know it. You could go into a room and, you know, maybe Maybe you grew up in an alcoholic family and there's a thousand suitors and you pick, you know, you pick a suitor that's definitely an alcoholic. Like there's a telly, there's an unknowing, there's a image um, that we're drawn to certain people for certain reasons. And sometimes it's because it feels familiar and doesn't always have to be like trauma for say, but there's a familiarity. And so we're going to gravitate towards people and then we're going to come together and then our work is going to show up. And the person who maybe like was wonderful is going to now present some of our biggest fears and concerns. And so the question is then can both people get more conscious about what's going on inside. And I just, you know, it's kind of annoying that this information is not out there to the general public, because I think so many people leave relationships without really getting, giving it a chance Mm -hmm. or riding it out or getting the right support or truly understanding what's going on for them. There's a lot of fear and it's like in our culture to like go back out line and date or just try again. And it's like your patterns stay with you. I was just going to say that. Like you just repeat the same patterns over and over. There are perhaps safer relationships in terms of more forgiving relationships, but you're still going to repeat them. So the hope is that you can get conscious with whomever you are, even right now, before you kind of move on to the next, or maybe you evolve in this relationship and you can use it as a catalyst as your own growth and your partner decides to grow too with you. How important is it that the partners are on the same page? Because sometimes one partner is doing different work than the other. I mean, that can also be very confusing for people of like, well, I'm doing my growth and this person's not doing their growth. It's a tricky question because someone who's anxious will line up for work all day long. And sometimes that's anxiety driven. Yeah. Right. And so sometimes someone who's anxious is being with the uncertainty and being with the abandonment and letting things settle. And that's actually where the work is being held in that. (laughs) I'm like, I relate to that. Yeah, Yeah. I do too. I totally do. And it's frustrating trying to get someone who's more avoidant to go to therapy and I can Yeah. And I can say a lot about that, but, and the hope is that, that there's enough space for that person to get vulnerable too, and that both things are happening. You know, every dynamic is different, but if you do your own work, there's a system there that's going to shift. So the only thing you have control over is yourself and doing your own work in hopes that you change the system. And that's a really important thing for an anxious person because we like to control the other person and we think if they fix it, then we'll be okay. And the truth is like, it'd be nice if they were on board doing the work with us and the way we want it done. But sometimes our work is to let go and realize they might not, that might not be the work for them. Mm -hmm. Or maybe they will do the work when we finally let go and deal with some of the abandonment and the energy shifts. Yes. That's another important piece too. I hear a lot of people asking questions to us. 
how do I get my partner to do this? How do I get my partner to do that? Lose weight, go to therapy, what have you. And I always say, you can't, you can't get anybody to do anything. What you can do is do the best work on yourself. I think that does give you a different lens when you're even talking to your partner or your friends or whomever, you know, I was recently it's definitely talking to, empowering. Yes, it's empowering. I was recently talking to a client about this of just saying she had a really big break breakthrough last week, and she's like, I can completely see how I'm talking to my partner differently this week just from that one thing, and that may shift enough to where you can land on a plateau for a while and just hang out there and work on some things on your own and not just completely jump ship, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's really, Mm -hmm. it doesn't always have to be like every, you know, your partner's in the same exact place as you all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And anxious attachment, um, another name for it is ambivalent. So what that really means is I am not comfortable in the unknown. So I either have to be running towards or running away (laughs) if things get uncomfortable. And I think it's really hard for us to sit in uncertainty and to not know and not be all in or all out, but like kind of be in that space of just being with ourselves and and the unknown and letting the relationship fold and not always knowing the exact outcome of everything. There's a lot of support that's needed in that space. What do you say about, or what do you tell clients when people are even just afraid to get into a relationship because they want the guarantee that it's going to work out? People who are even just afraid of starting a relationship because they're like that, that like beginning anxiety of, I want it to work out so bad. Yeah. I mean, I hear you. You're not alone in that. It's scary to be vulnerable. There's no certainty, but I hear that this person has been hurt deeply before. So I hope they're supported around that. I hope that, you know, if you're anxious, you go slow when it comes to intimacy and I think the slower you go with support and the better it is because you should be vulnerable at a slow pace so that it's happening on both sides. And so that you can just pace yourself a little, if it's going too fast, you kind of need to pull back or you need to maybe have a supportive friend be a mirror for you. So just go slow, simplify it. You're not walking down the aisle. If it's your first date, you're just meeting another soul. Uh, You're kind of finding if you even like them. I find that anxious people are trying sometimes to make it so the other person likes them and they're, they forget to like realize that like they get to pick this person too, you know, and it shifts the energy when you start to think, Oh, well, I have, I'm interviewing this person too. And I can take my time with this interview. That is such a good point. I talk to people a lot too, that are really shape-shifting to be someone to make the other person like them, Mm -hmm. whether they're aware of it or not, that's really dangerous because you're, just completely ignoring your own sense of self to just get someone to like you, to validate you, whatever that may be. So I'm glad you brought that up because that's just a lot of people do that. And I don't think yeah. they realize it. Yeah. And it's actually a brilliant strategy that they probably used when they were young, you know, but the problem is that they never really are sensing into. I've had a client once who was like doing that a lot. And I was talking about this guy that she was dating. And I said to her, I said, if he shut up in my office door right now with a thousand roses and said he wanted to be with you, how would you feel? And she's like, oh, I don't even know if I would pick him. I'm like, you're so busy about whether he would pick you and the fear of rejection so busy in you that you haven't even taken the energy yet to see if you would actually pick him. You know, so you really got to flip that around and kind of say, okay, would I pick this person or is the fear of rejection really, or the need to be chosen driving my behavior? Oh my gosh. The fear of rejection or the need to be chosen. I feel like everyone just like everyone listening hit a 
hit the brakes if they were driving. Like, oh my gosh, that's me. A lot of people can relate to that because we live in a culture. We want to be chosen. Mm-hmm. We don't, we can't. Would you agree or how do you feel about like kind of how you go throughout life and whether or not you have a tolerance for rejection plays a big role in your life? Well, I mean, I think we go throughout our life unconsciously avoiding certain feelings. So people pleasers, you know, feeling scared of rejection. There are feelings that come up when we are letting people down or when we're getting rejected that are awful. And I think the more you can be with that and the origins of that and understand that and unpack that and build your self-esteem up around that, make sense of that, the less you care. I mean, you always hear about it. Like when people get into the thirties and then their forties and then their fifties, they just start to not give it, you know? Yeah. And it's like, I think you get to a point where you just become more and more yourself yes. and less and less concerned about what other people think. And the more you can be your authentic self, the more you realize that the people who are meant for you will find you and you will be with them. And the people who don't jive with you, you won't care so much. You'll just let them go, mm-hmm. let them go. And it takes a lot of pausing and kind of unplugging sometimes to really evaluate those relationships mm-hmm. and take space. I always advise people to take space because if you're just in it and you're tangled in it, you really can't see what's happening. Mm-hmm. And I think yeah. that's really important too. Yeah. I think there's also like a lot of projection that can go to, around and remember like projection we don't do consciously. So someone can hurt us and then we can think differently about them, but it's really, what is the hurt that's coming up inside of us? You know? So kind of looking at your relationships is like, what are they bringing up inside of me? What are they awakening inside of me for me to start getting curious? Cause that's where the catalyst of healing happens. <laughs> As you can tell, I'm a very emotional person. I'm like having all these very visceral relax- reactions. So talk about like the wounds, talk a little bit about wounds. And maybe that goes into the nervous system. Cause I do want to talk some about that. Um, yeah. How that impacts our relationships. Yeah. I mean, and that was an important part for me too. So I talk a lot about implicit memories versus explicit. So for those of you that listening, we have memories that we think of as like a movie And then we have memories that are sensation because we're not born with a fully developed hippocampus. So we store a lot of sensation in our body. You know, the way in which we kind of start to come out of the world and the way we interact, we start to get a felt sense of us. So if there's a lot going on, we can start to feel like something's wrong with us. A baby will turn it inward. And then as you're developing, if your parents aren't letting your sad parts show up or your angry parts, or if they're not curious and if they're not seeing all of you, you start to develop these core wounds around I'm not enough, or I'm unlovable, or I will always be left. And they're really sensations and, and, and they're in your body, actually. They're not even in your head. Your head just is bringing this narrative up. They're usually a felt sense in your body. And people don't realize that the they're felt in your in your heart brain and in your belly brain. Those are very powerful places where a lot of these sensations are sending information up to your brain. And then your brain is making up a story in your head. So you can have a core wound of I'm I'm always going to be left, or my expectation is that connection is going to be broken. And that can be so entrenched in your story and your narrative and your body that you almost recreate it or you look for a sign of it and then you follow that monkey trail down, right? Because you're so scared of it. So, you know, I think of a core wound more as a felt sensation that you attached a story to. And you did that to survive. You did that as a way to make sense of your world early on. It's just, unfortunately, it drives a lot of your behaviors in the here and now. And so it's, it's, 
it's good to get conscious of all those implicit or subconscious core wounds. How much do you, or I should say not believe, but what are your thoughts around the mind-body connection and how you maybe internalize? And I'm trained in EMDR as well. I think you're, Mm -hmm. you're an EMDR therapist. And so how we internalize those wounds and that trauma and how it shows up, whether we're aware of it or not, the mind-body connection. Talk about that in your practice. 80% of the information is being sent from your body up to your brain. So if something's going on and you sense danger, your body's responding before your brain is. And, you know, 20% um, is sent back down. I think that most we're moving in a direction where we know that you can't think your way out of things. You have to actually tune into different centers of your body in a more somatic way. So tuning into your heart center and tuning into your gut and being with your body and your body sensation is actually where the wisdom is. Like your the language of the trauma is in sensation. And if, if you think about it, all the really hard moments of your life, there might've been thoughts attached, but the sensations are what's really powerful. And those are the stored things that are stored in your body and your and they're happening in the here and now, and your brain is making sense of them or trying to make sense of them in the here and now, but usually they're thematic and usually they're tied to a core wound or, uh, you know, that kind of thing. So when I work with clients, I don't just work with what they're thinking about. I work on connecting that into their body. I don't use EMDR as much anymore, but just more like somatic practices and more about being with the sensation versus the narrative. Mm -hmm. That's really important. Now let's take a quick break and talk about our sponsors, the makers of our favorite CBD products, Ned. Claire and I use these products regularly. They are a part of our rituals, our daily rituals. Claire's posted a few reels you'll see on our Instagram handle where she has this lovely bedtime routine. I like to take the sleep blend as a part of my routine. It's something that... (laughs) We love to do to take care of ourselves. And these days when life feels really stressful, those small little habits that you can do to take care of yourself make a really big impact. And we feel very strongly that Ned contributes to a lot of our health and wellness currently. We love to promote products that we believe in, that there are great people that stand behind these products and Ned really delivers. Ned is science-backed nature-based solutions, and it offers an alternative to prescription and over-the-counter drugs. Ned products are chock full of premium CBD. Ned's full-spectrum hemp oil nourishes the body's endocannabinoid system to offer full functional support for stress, sleep, inflammation, and balance. The Mellow Magnesium, which is also one of my favorites, is a powerful daily magnesium supplement with amino acids and trace minerals that propel memory, mood, brain function, stress response, nerve, and muscle health, and sleep. Full transparency, Ned shares third-party lab results, who farms their products, and their extraction process. It's all right there on their website. They have over 2,000 five-star reviews. They have a money-back guarantee. There really is nothing to lose. If you want to support our podcast, please support Ned. Become the best version of yourself. Get 15% off Ned products with code JOY. Go to helloned.com forward slash joy or enter joy at checkout. That's H-E-L-L-O-N-E-D.com slash joy to get 15% off. Thank you, Ned, for sponsoring the show and offering our listeners a natural remedy for some of life's most common health issues. I think about an example. What do you think about like, you know, I was in a car, not a car accident, like a fender bender a couple of years ago. And I remember seeing the car like about to rear end me and I just like tensed up and I was like, (gasps) 
because you could like brace and you saw it happening. And I have a little bit more of a fear. And I always joke that I'm like, I just need to do some EMDR to like get that out of my system. Because every now when I drive, I have a pretty like heightened sense of fear that was never there. Mm -hmm. Um, And it probably is a good thing because I used to drive like (laughs) hell on wheels. (laughs) That body sensation, I noticed that. And I'm Mm -hmm. like, oh, you know. I think I know what that's from. That's like the perfect example because that happens to us so many times and we don't even realize it. And yeah. it comes up here and there and it's your body's basically saying that was scary before that could be scary again. So I'm going to warn you yeah, so monster. we can prevent yeah. yourself Yeah, can prevent yourself from experience. And that's exactly what happens in relationships. Oh, this person is looking at their phone or they didn't text me back. They must not care. I'm warning you. I'm already trying to protect you from abandonment. Yes. And the sensation can be really big. And that might not even be what's going on, but you're, you're primed to fear that. Yes. Well, you're trying to protect yourself, actually. All of these are protectors. protectors. You're trying to protect yourself from abandonment. Ironically, the protectors lead to more abandonment. <sighs> yeah. Talk about that. Can you talk a little yeah, bit about that? Yeah. So it's like... <laughs> So with anxious people, they want to be close and they want to be in connection. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with being in connection. But if they feel left, they can get angry, which is normal. Um, they can text excessively. They can, they'll can think about their partners a lot. They'll vent a lot, which is actually an obsessive quality to keep that energy close. They'll do a lot of things to stay in connection, whether positive or negative, because they're scared to death of the abandonment wound. And so all of this happens on an unconscious level too, and there's no shame or judgment. I mean, so many people, myself included, and I write, do this uh, all the time. But I think once you start to realize like, okay, I'm really avoiding my biggest fear. Can I bring my biggest fear and some of my pain to someone help me sort through it so that I'm not having all these strategies to avoid it. And I can be a little bit free of some of these behaviors. Or if I'm doing these behaviors, I can be more conscious and compassionate with myself that I'm doing these behaviors. Right. And it's more than a knowing because Lord Almighty, we could read a million self-help books, but it's the feeling yourself through it that sucks. Sucks. That's the hardest part. Oh, man, I sucks. (laughs) I mean, people are like, oh, I want to heal. I'm like, do you realize that healing is being with the parts of you that it's hard work? It's It's not love and light. No, it's not love and life. And it's not just like uh, I heard someone talking the other day. It was like, just choose fear or love. I'm like, yeah, I get that. That whole, that whole premise of like everything you do is based out of fear or love. I'm like, all of these things sound great. They sound great, but the actual work is in the feeling and the muddiness and the icky and the actually going into the war of your emotions and being like, I got to sit with this. I have to sit with the unknowing. I have to face the fear of this person that I'm dating, just never texting me back. And I have to just like be okay with that. Are know you kidding okay. me? Yeah. yeah. yeah that, know that I'm okay. That's, that is hard work. And I really? can feel that. Yeah. And so I want listeners to really think about that is you can listen to self-help podcasts all day. You can listen to this discussion and kind of internalize it in your brain, but actually internalizing it in your heart is a completely different thing. And I, we acknowledge that it is not easy. And we witness this know. in people's journeys every single day when they're doing the work. And it is like, whew. 
Yeah. I love that. You're so real. I can feel you. And I can tell that you've done the work. I've done the work. We're always in the work. It is hard work. We hear you if you're listening. Like this isn't easy stuff. It's not like some people have it more figured out than others. Like if you're doing the work, it means that you have the right support around you and you're in it and we get it. Yeah. I'm I'm going to speak for you, but I'm pretty sure you would agree. Like we're not in this perfect enlightened state where we're like, we figured it out. <laughs> no, not at all. I, I was like, it's, it's actually being in a state where you don't have much figured out, but you know, you have the support there if things get scary. Yes. Yes. You've surrounded yourself with the right people. Mm-hmm. You do have that ability to be like, this is horrible. I'm mm-hmm. scared out of my mind, but I am not going to run the other way. And right. I know that the ickiness is part of it. Ooh. And it's, it's like, as much as I wish I could take all of that away, I'm like, it's just a part of life. And I like to explain it to my clients where I'm always like, every part of the, every emotion is part of the rainbow. We've got to like, we've got to appreciate all of it. And uh-huh. I see your awesome rainbow bookshelf, by the way, listeners, uh-huh. she has like Thanks. the best rainbow bookshelf organized. It's helping my Virgo self like soothe. Um, <sighs> but it's just, it's amazing. Like every single thing we can't be like, always striving for positivity. I mean, what the heck is that? And I think that's why I have such an aversion to like the toxic positivity stuff too. Oh God, you are like music to my ear. And if, if it was as easy as, I mean, so I wrote the book and if it was as easy as choosing, we would all be choosing love. Right. right. But I think, right. I think you can be aware and start to understand your adaptations. And I think in that awareness with the right support, your ability to be with more of yourself expands. And in that it's healing, but spiritual bypassing is like, it makes me cringe when people are like, Oh, and they make you feel like they have it all figured out and they're like blissful all the time. And I'm just, I'm a little weary of that. I'm like, even the high vibes only. I'm like, what do we do on our shitty days? Aren't we allowed no. somewhere on our low days? I mean, no. come on. Like we all go through, yep. we all go through so much stuff. And it's like, I think being more honest about that and about relationships, like you said, and that gives people permission to be in them more yes. and not to think that there's something wrong with them. And that we shouldn't always be striving for that blissful state. It's that's so unrealistic. No. Yeah. I mean, you need to be where you're at and have support and allow more and more of yourself to surface. And that is, that is the spiritual process is to letting things surface if you can and not judging yourself and kind of learning about how you adapted. I think that's the most developing self-compassion. I envision it. I'm very visual. And so when I describe things to clients, sometimes I'm like, just bear with me. This may be a really weird example, (laughs) but I envision it kind of like someone just sitting, like the emotion is there in front of them or the bad feeling or whatever it is. And they're just like in a field and it's space. And they're like, we're just going to hang out here. Okay. Like there's nothing around almost like safe place in EMDR, but it's like you and your bad emotion or negative emotion or whatever it is, the fearful thing. And you just like have to sit there with it. And it's just like, and nothing around is going to like, it's, it can't touch you. You're going to be okay, but you you do have to coexist. And that's Mm -hmm. what I think is like, what I envision when I see, when I hear you talking about this work. Absolutely. I mean, that is dead on. And I think if you can't coexist with it alone, that's when you pull in a resource. And I talk about internal resources. So like, if you can't be with that big feeling alone, that's where someone externally can be with you, present with you to help you. And then eventually you can pull that person in as an internal resource. 
So if it's too big and it's too scary and you know that, go to someone who can hold that with you. And then your capacity to hold it within you will expand. Like a therapist or like a trusted friend. Yeah. It has to be someone kind, nurturing, who's not trying to fix you. I mean, we live in a, we live in a society where everybody wants to fix, do this, do that, do this, blah, blah, blah. Right. But someone who's actually just going to be with you, it's in the being, Mm -hmm. the holding that actually is the releasing and the uh, giving you the capacity, you know, those friends that you call and you kind of vent and they're like, Oh, just dump him or do this or do that. That's, that's not the type of holding I'm saying it's, it's with the friend who's like, maybe you can tell your friend, I'm not looking for advice. I just want you to like validate that this is hard for me, or just listen to me, or just tell me what you hear, but I don't want to change anything. I just want to feel heard in this moment. I want to bring you into my field, my safety field. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So we can hang out here together. Right. Um, What is it? Is it the roomy quote that it's like, there is a field. I will meet you there. What is it? It's going to drive me nuts. I got to look it up here in a second. Oh, there it is. Okay. Out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and right doing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. I feel like we need to have that quote just be with our emotions, our wounds, our everything. It's so deep, so deep but, but yeah. <laughs> But I, and I don't mean to go, if Claire was here, she'd make fun of me so much. She's like the opposite of me in like the best possible way. She keeps me like my feet on the ground a little bit where she'd be like, Joy, uh-huh. come back down. You but and I could go like to the ethereal. We'd be, we'd be off in the clouds. <laughs> she'd be like, hello. But I also want to say you touched on this and then I want to wrap up with a little bit more about your book. But you mentioned or you, you were mentioning kind of like the fixing thing. And one of my pet peeves that I really hope we never want to bash people, but I always want to we always want to educate listeners around being a smart or being a, being an educated uh, consumer. And so when we see, when I see influencers or people out there that are hanging a shingle and saying, you can, I can help you fix your body issues. I can help you fix your whatever issues, but relationship issues. It really rubs me the wrong way because most of the time it's kind of like a, I've got the miracle cure and I don't think that's the right approach. Perhaps it's not everybody, but when I see that, I get a little skeptical, like my spidey senses come up where it's it's not, this person doesn't have the quick fix for you. Yeah. Life is not a quick fix. Diets, crash courses, and how to re- reach enlightenment, it's nothing is a quick fix. Right. The way to go through this is that really hard tunnel of like, I'm going in. <laughs> Yeah, no, I agree with you. I remember at one point I was like, I got to go on a spiritual retreat and I got to do this. And I was going to Tulum. And I remember one of my friends like, Jess, you could be spiritual today right here. Why don't you start your spiritual practice tomorrow morning? And she just, and I was like, yeah, oh my God, you're right. I don't need to go to Tulum to be spiritual. This was years ago, but yeah, yeah, like you can start right where you are and right where you are is where all the work is. And there's no final destination, but like being where you are and allowing that support to come in. And that's the big piece of it that is in my book for anxious people. Uh, Healing doesn't happen alone. Healing happens in healing relationships. So pulling in the right support doesn't have to be a therapist and a lot of therapists want to fix. So, you know, but it has to be someone who, and I'm spiritual. If you call it in, I think it will come, but someone who can hold that non-judgmental space for you and be there for you and help you navigate some of this because you don't have to do any of this alone. It's Mm -hmm. not meant to be alone. No. And I I love what you said just about how this is not something that is just like an easy do this and then get that. You can start now. Like you don't need that really expensive retreat. 
I was that person too. I read so many books, just like hoping to feel okay. <laughs> but it's like, and the other thing is you have to be patient. Would you agree? Like you have to be patient. When I was in my twenties, you know, even into my thirties, now I'm 44. I'm like, I don't think I could have gotten the answer. It does take time. And we want it right now. And we want to be like that. You know, I used to have that idea that I was going to like reach happiness at 30 or something, whatever crap. Oh, man. And I'm like, oh, oh, you never reach that. You're constantly mm -hmm. evolving. And so I think that's just a really important reminder. Or you think you like start now. Like in my 20s were hell, but like you think, oh, by this age, you'll, you should have it a little bit more figured out. And then life throws you another curveball. And you're like, no, it's an evolution constantly. And I don't mean to be a downer. It's actually an amazing, amazing. evolution, but it's not easy. It's there's no fix. You're right. There's no fix. It's a being with staying curious, allowing the right support to come in and, you know, letting it unvolve. I think evolve. I think anxious people want to fix and like, patience is our hardest thing, especially when it comes to our partners, like we'll be the oh first gosh, one to yeah. go in and do and try and blah, blah, blah. We spend so much energy on our side. It's actually pulling back and being patient and allowing that other person to show up. That is where our work is. I'm not saying that's where their work is. I'm saying that's where our work is. I remember a I read a lot of Abraham Hicks in my 20s. One of the tools where I was like, I gotta, I gotta be enlightened. I gotta get this like perfect. That's when like the secret blew up and it was just like, you know, everyone thought that that was the answer to life. But I will never forget because this has stuck with me and I listened to like tons of their talks was you get to be with a partner and I love the approach of just being like, you should never say, and listeners, I'm not saying like this is my true belief, but this resonated with me. I just think it's a cute way to say it is like, you should never say till death do us part forever and ever. It's just, I like you pretty good. Let's see how this goes. <laughs> Instead of just like this forever and ever and ever. It's just, let's go into relationships to be like, I like you pretty good. Let's see how this goes. And also that we should never come at something and say, you change so I can feel better. And that's another one that has really stuck with me. Yeah. And I think for anxious people, it's a hard concept because the feeling of loss and abandonment so big in them. So the fantasy of forever is like their ultimate like antidote. Yeah, and so it's a really sense. hard concept to put that fantasy down that this is forever. True. And very true. It's actually putting the fantasy down. And I do have like, that's part of the book, but When you let go of that, that you can really be with your partner even more day to day, you know, within the moment and trust the unfolding of it. And it's a very more intimate way to be, but it's scarier to live in that way, you know, and just really allowing yourself to not buy into any absolute and just trusting that you and your partner will evolve together. It's kind of like or you not. have to live or not. It's like you have right. to live your life. I would imagine the anxious, the anxious attached feels like you're standing atop a cliff looking down and the butterflies constantly. And that's probably how it feels when you're kind of going into those emotions of like, oh, I'm really, really scared. This is very scary. You know, I, I think I don't want to fall. Yeah, I think that's how they start initially. But when you build the internal and external support, your partner actually becomes part of that. Even when they let you down, if you feel like they inherently have your best interest at heart, they don't go You know, and I think you start to realize that you are more supported than you you realize because you're letting that support in and um, internalizing it. But I think in the beginning, it is it is really scary. And listen, life is can be scary until you learn that in the uncertainty is where the magic happens. And 
you know, that's easy said, and it's, it's something you have to walk in every day and it's not so easily done and you're not alone. And it is where the magic happens. It is where the intimacy of life happens. It's in being in the present moment and not knowing always how it's going to unfold. Because guess what? We're all there. Yes. We're all there. Not one of us is exempt from that. Like we all have to live with the unknowing. Uh-huh. I want to say one more thing and then I promise we'll wrap up. But I, when you were talking to about just developing and really growing within yourself and how to work through the emotions, I also think about like the patience piece when you're in your 20s or 30s or wherever you are in life is that, I, you know, if you think back listeners to your 20 year old self, And if you're in your 30s or 40s, this will probably be a little bit more applicable. But, you know, you think of your 20-year-old self and how you just, the experience you had is limited. It truly does take patience that every moment, interaction, friendship, relationship you have expands your world and expands your ability to put this into practice in a different way. My 20-year-old self was so different, so limited on my views. And I chose to put myself in situations that really expanded. I followed that. I was I was brave. I did scary things that kind of developed me in ways where I just never thought I would. And that gave me that 2020 vision where I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad I grew in that way. So you're not going to ever be using these tools and this growth in the same way because you're you're truly not the same person. And I think that's something else to think about is I know it's hard. I know we want to just have those answers right away but it does take time. And so why not just set that down and live in the present? <sighs> okay. Yeah. But you sweating. are deep. I'm sweating. I, mean, I normally don't mean meet that many people that could go as deep as me, but yeah, I think, I think it's hard to set that down and be in the present. But I think again, if you can do that, like the gifts are really there, it's better than running and running and running. And again, yeah. that's just a fear response, you know? Yeah. So final question, and then we can wrap up and tell listeners where they can buy your book, where they can find you, how to become yourself, like your full self. And where can people, people love like a starting point. If you were to say like, what's something people can do today, like start that process or even just explore that process, what would that look like? I have this exercise in my book. It's called adopting your full self. Oh, awesome. And it's like, I love exercises. <laughs> um, yeah. Like pulling some photos from childhood and looking at the traits of yourself that maybe you don't like or despise, or for me, it was like a heavier 13 year old or whatever, starting to sit with those photos and starting to adopt and accept the parts of yourself that you don't like and realize that those parts are there for a reason. And it's in the acceptance. It's kind of like shadow work of it's okay. It's okay that you were dorky. It's okay that you were this. It's okay that you're shy. It's okay that you're not a good reader. Like all of those parts of you are okay. So I think if you can start to be more okay with what you perceived or learned from society that wasn't okay, but if you can try to accept those parts in you, I mean, I use this example. I have this picture of myself when I was 13 and Before I did a lot of my work, I would look at it and I'd see so much shame. I was like, oh my God, this chunky 13-year-old, I was like the last one to like develop in my class. And my best friend could could have been on the cover of Sports Illustrated. And I looked at the photo and I just wanted to look away. And the more and more work that I did on myself, now I look at her and I just want to hug her. And I love her so much. And she's allowed to be there and she's allowed to show up and I don't have to hide from her or shove her down anywhere. So I think if you can go to those parts and realize 
where did your life become contingent? Where did you have to shut yourself down? Where did you learn that this wasn't okay, an okay part to have or an okay feeling to have? Start to embrace it and, and explore it. And um, eventually you will want to run and hug it rather than to shy away from it. And that takes work. Yeah. I'm just envisioning like, oh man, that's, I bet you a lot of people are like tearing up over that just to think about giving yourself that, your younger self that love or at least yeah. examining the pain that you went through. Cause I think that's yeah. really, really, really hard. It's hard. Okay. Well, this was beyond lovely for me to have me a too. conversation with you. <laughs> I feel like we could start our own podcast. It just, it was just really, I love the, I love the work that you're doing, not only as a therapist, but just as a human in the world wanting to help people. I just think that's amazing what you're doing. Tell our listeners where they can find your book and if they yeah. want to follow you on social media or your website. So I think we gave you a link for pre-order because there's some free stuff that you might want to throw in there, but you can find my book on Amazon, Anxiously Attached, Becoming More Secure in Life and Love. BeSelfful.com is my website. There's a pre-order page. So if you put your information there, you get some like meditations and a free course on dating. And then my uh, Instagram is Jessica Baum, L-M-H-C. That's licensed mental health counselor, LMHC. And um, you can find me on there, sign up for my newsletter and stay connected. I usually send a letter out once or twice a month with some valuable information around relationships. Well, we will link all of that in our podcast notes as well. And I can't wait to, I I think that's just, uh, I can't wait for this episode to come out because I know everyone's going to be messaging us. So we'll make sure that all of the links are on there. Now you're licensed in the state of Florida, but you also do a coaching business. Is there anything Mm -hmm. people need to know if they want to work with you specifically? I'm not really taking new clients at this moment, but I have five therapists on my team and I, where we work as a team, as a system. So I'm involved in every case. And sometimes I'll take a new client on, but I work with every client that we take, even if, you know, and I'm part of, but like my caseload has been pretty full for a little, um, a while. So I might be taking clients on over the summer, but if you do want to work with me, everybody on my team is trained in attachment theory and does similar work and is trained in Imago. So we work as a team. So you can come to me and I'll be part of that or maybe get me if, if my caseload goes down a little if, bit. If they're lucky. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I understand that too. And you have to set boundaries for yourself because it's yes. important for therapists. Um, so listeners, thank you again for tuning in this week to this is join claire you can find us joinclaire.com we are on social media instagram at joinclaire underscore check out our new website because we just did a rebrand and it's really really cute thank you guys again and we'll talk to you next week 